1: To help resolve their ed i'm joined today by brian mahoney brian is a certified hypnotherapist with accreditation from the american board of hypnotherapy the american board of hypnotist examiners and the national guild of hypnotists he has been in full-time private practice with boston hypnosis since 2004 he has a specialty in psychological erectile dysfunction And he's helped thousands of clients resolve anxiety and panic issues with hypnotherapy. Over the years, he's seen that guys with erectile dysfunction tend to get really good results for themselves. Now, before we get started with this episode, I want to provide a framework for our listeners. The way that I think about psychogenic erectile dysfunction is that anxiety in its various forms can have a negative impact on the brain's focus, distracting from pleasure. can interfere with the cognitive processes that signal to the body to send blood down to the genitals, which leads to healthy erections. There are numerous approaches to addressing this anxiety, and we like to discuss as many as we can on this show. I think that today's episode is going to be informative to our listeners about how they think about their own erections and erectile dysfunction. One quick note is that hypnotherapy is not a regulated practice in every state in the United States. There's a concept of non-therapeutic hypnosis, which is the practice of facilitating positive thinking and teaching people how to self-hypnotize. This episode is not intended to make any health claims and is an exploration of an approach that is commonly practiced. Anyone seeking these services should consult with their practitioner and their state mental health board about all the local regulations before proceeding forward. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Okay. I know it was a long-winded introduction, but I would like to just start off if you can help our listeners understand what exactly is hypnosis. It's
0: a really interesting question because if you go to six different hypnotherapy manuals, six different uh, hypnosis textbooks, you could easily get six different definitions. I myself try to kind of steer away from any strict definition, uh, so much as talk about the way I see it, which is it's a way of helping people get in touch with some of the sort of deeper and sometimes outside of consciousness aspects of them. You know as as we know, you know, modern neuroscience would say that, you know, any, any given decision, about 95% of what goes into it is all stuff that's happening outside of consciousness. You know, only about 5% of what's happening in our mind at any one time is actually conscious. So I see hypnotherapy, whether it's formal or otherwise, as a way of, oftentimes, there are a lot of different ways to use it, but usually it's a way of engaging some of those other parts of us and bringing them into the conversation, so to speak.
1: In other words, if I'm understanding correctly, broadly speaking, without talking about the specific techniques, um, large portions of our brains are not easily accessible through conscious methodologies. And one of the primary goals from your perspective of hypnotherapy is to be able to access those less accessible areas. And to be able to help people process through whatever might be stored in them emotionally, cognitively, and whatnot. Is that an accurate depiction? Yeah. Well, would it be okay if I gave you an example? Absolutely.
0: Think of, uh, think of someone with a phobia. So we're talking about someone who's afraid of spiders. Okay. The guy is walking down the street, and he sees that little spider there on the sidewalk. At that moment, in his conscious mind, he gets it. Logically rationally analytically it's just a little spider he knows it's not going to bother him but at a deeper level at that subconscious unconscious emotional body level he's terrified his palms are sweating his stomach's clenching um, his hands are shaking he's getting this very very strong signal of fear and all that conscious awareness that he has that it doesn't make any sense doesn't do anything to make it go away. He still feels everybody's scared. So in a situation like that, hypnosis can be really useful as a way of helping him to connect with that part of him that's sending that fear signal. Because some part of him has a real problem with spiders, but again, consciously, he'll completely understand it makes no sense. Once he's engaged with that part of him, He can work with it. He can find out what resources it needs, what learning it might need, what healing it might need, whatever it might need there. Once he's had the chance to do the work at that level, usually if he goes back down the street, sees the spider, well, he's not getting that signal from that part of him anymore. So he's probably going to feel pretty much like everyone else does. Does that make sense?
1: That definitely makes sense. And I, I, I want to kind of tease this out a little bit more for, for my own understanding and certainly for our listeners, because what I'm gathering is, and maybe this is you know not a hundred percent accurate, but that the the hypnotherapy approach as you're presenting it suggests that conscious thinking tends to be much more on a rational plane. And the Irrational signals that are being sent that perpetuate anxiety and fear oftentimes exist on a subconscious plane, which are not as easily accessible at a conscious level.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think the key word there is oftentimes, you know, I would never suggest that this is like this for everyone for, for a second. A lot of times the problem can be much more on the conscious side. But for a lot of the folks that I work with, yeah, it's uh, the the structure um, matches um, the phobia description I described pretty much perfectly.
1: Okay, and I think it's going to be an interesting point that we'll we'll kind of you know maybe talk out a little bit further as we get a little bit into the examples around um, sexual dysfunction or erectile dysfunction, um, because I think that that you know what what um, many of us would would absolutely agree upon is that um, a lot of that anxiety is driven by irrational fear question is how as as therapists and how as people who are trying to overcome this how can they best access and address that irrational fear which is feeding the anxiety um, consciously subconsciously what are some of the best routes and we'll we'll, we'll get a little bit further into that hopefully now, um, I know this is a little bit of a lighter question, but I think it's going to be important for our listeners. So there's sure. a big stereotype out there that you know, hyp- hypnosis means uh, dangling a yo-yo or some other object in front of people's eyes. And putting, pocket you know, watch, big pocket watch, big pocket big watch, pocket watch right? image, and, a lot of pocket watch images out there, putting them into a trance of some sort. Mm-hmm. Now, is is this part of hypnotherapy and is this the way that you practice hypnotherapy?
0: You know, as you mentioned in the intro, I've been doing this work for probably really about 20 years, and I was absolutely trained in formal inductions, you know, your element induction, surprise induction, uh, fascination induction, progressive relaxation. You know, there's dozens, hundreds of different hypnotic inductions that um, a hypnotherapist can do with a person. Maybe I've just become lazy in my old age, but I don't find you need to do that. What I find is that when a client comes in and I'm making it very clear that I really respect the whole experience that they have and whatever is going on at the unconscious level, there's probably a really good reason for it. And we're here to help. We're not here to shut anything down. We're not here to pump up willpower or anything like that. We just want to make sure that every single aspect of the person is really, you know, feels happy and comfortable and good about moving forward from here. Because if the person's here in my office, that's probably not the case. And I find that working in that kind of a frame, I don't need to do all that other stuff. Uh usually by setting that up and just having a conversation, usually it's useful for the person to have their eyes closed. So I don't know if that counts as if not a conduction. Uh, I would say it's not a particularly sophisticated one, but by having a person close their eyes and take their attention inside and really start to pay very close attention to what's happening in their body, most of the time those... If that's this if the structure is what I've described, and there's an outside of consciousness sort of part of a person driving the problem, it's usually very quick to get involved in the conversation because usually at some level it's been unhappy for a long time, and here's this guy coming along and saying, "Hi, I want to listen to you and see if we might be able to help, which is an experience that
1: most people haven't had before mm-hmm. okay so so to that end. I mean, it sounds to me a little bit like like um, there's an element of a somatic approach that you take yeah, in terms sure. of. Can, can, yep. can you elaborate on that a little bit more and kind of flesh that <clears throat> out for our listeners?
0: Take this as, with as big a grain of salt as you like. Uh, this, is, this is just my experience. But what I find is that people can talk about something all day long. But if they're not if it's not making any difference in the way they feel it's probably not going to to change very much so anytime I'm working with a client it's always very much back and forth with what are they thinking what are they saying how does that feel what's how is the body responding to that and that's where you'll see uh, clients really make um, some nice changes for themselves you know when the body is involved when that subject that when we first started talking about it their stomach, you know, really clenched up and we did some work and we kind of talked that through and found some help in whatever way that part of them was looking for it. At the end of the conversation, the person can talk about the same thing, imagine the same thing, and their stomach is really nice and relaxed. Okay, that's 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 a nice piece of work, much more so in my own experience than someone at the end of a conversation saying, yes, yes, I understand
1: that. Okay, it's so like, it's like just a head understanding. It's more like a
0: body understanding.
1: So, so to clarify, though, does the does the body hold on to or contain what is being stored in the subconscious? In other words, is that the conduit in? How does one go about as a hypnotherapist accessing some of that subconscious?
0: Well, I think I think as a, as a hypnotherapy in general, I'm sure people would say there's all kinds of different ways to do it. Uh, I would just speak from from my experience and what I do. And once have that part of the person active, usually usually it's very easy. you know with an ed client for for example, okay, what I'd like you to do is close your eyes for a moment and imagine you're just walking into the bedroom and your wife is waiting for you and you think she might be in the mood. How does their body respond to that? Usually, just with as sort of as simple a prompt as that. That feeling is going to is going to light up, and then that's 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 the start of the conversation.
1: In other words, you're saying that the the uh, the patient or the client may say, "I'm feeling a pressure in my head. I'm feeling not in my stomach," and kind of kind of going with that feel. Very much so. Yep. What what would be an example of a subconscious thought that a client would share with you in one of those moments? that would be much more challenging to access through, let's say a standard talk therapy.
0: It's kind of, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I don't think about it as a subconscious thought so much. Um, but I guess I would say a, a, a feeling, the person might think, might the, the client might say, I don't know what the problem is here. You know, I walk into the bedroom with my wife She's completely understanding. She's completely supportive. Uh, there's no reason at all for me to be worried or scared about this, but my stomach just just locks up, and I just my, I, I I feel um, myself get cold and sweaty, and my physical performance is just is just out the window. I don't know why. All I know is I've got that bad feeling, and basically I feel scared, even though there's no reason for me to feel scared. What's underlying that fear, uh, there could be all kinds of different things going on. I guess it could be a thought, maybe a, sometimes a rule or an expectation of some kind. You know, I need to perform, I must perform, you know, that that, that kind of stuff. Um but sometimes it can be something just completely different, and I don't. I won't have a, a lot of good examples because usually the way I'm working with clients, it's very private. I don't need to hear a lot of the details about the things that are that are driving uh, their fear. But oftentimes uh, it will be connected to uh, a memory, a memory of some kind. Um, and it wasn't it was, the the client brought it up un, unprompted, but not very long ago, I had a client just say, "Wow, I mean, that was when I was in a baseball field when I was nine. You know, something completely unrelated to sex, but at the unconscious level, the connection had been made there, and that's where kind of doing some in of other the words, work, yeah. Sorry, in other
1: words, if I'm understanding you correctly, saying that 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 the somatic feeling would be associated with memories that otherwise a person would not necessarily associate between the two, but that nine-year-old on the baseball field, that could have been his first memory of performance anxiety. And that, that becomes a much larger process of unlocking that and being able to process through that. Yeah. And you can use that somatic feel as a measure of progress beyond just um, the talk therapy part of it.
0: Yeah, the, the, the feeling can act as both a doorway into whatever those <clears throat> uh, memories were or thoughts were or whatever they were. And then after the work is done, yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> absolutely a metric. You know, what the, at the start of the conversation, uh, it was the feeling was really intense. Oh, OK, after I worked through that whole thing when I was nine, boy, that feels a lot better. It's still not quite still not quite there, though great. Okay. There's more work to do. And you, you, again, use that to kind of go in and sort of explore that, find out what else uh, what else might be going on.
1: We'll be associated with that. Got it. So before we shift to talk a little bit more about ED, I'm just wondering if you could give our listeners more of an overview. Of what are some of the common uh, issues that people uh, seek hypnosis for? I, I know of a family member of mine many years ago who um, saw a hypnotist, uh, to quit smoking after having failed many other uh, approaches mm-hmm. and was actually successful. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if, if it was right place, right time, or if it was the hypnotic process. Um, but I know that's one area where, where people do seek hypnosis and have been very successful. Are there mm-hmm. other areas that hypnosis like, or other issues that hypnosis primarily addresses?
0: Yeah, and again, I'd be reluctant to generalize to talk about you know other hypnotherapists because different people have different specialties. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there. I don't know if they could still do it now, but I know a while back there'd be mm-hmm. hypnotherapists who only worked with smokers. They could build a whole practice of working with smokers. I'm not sure so sure they could do that these days, but you know maybe if they if they live in the right area. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my practice, um, a lot of anxiety panic and phobias. Um, that's the, my primary area. Uh, I also do a lot of work with, uh, compulsions, uh, folks with eating issues, hair pulling, skin picking, nail biting, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, some habits, you know, some people with, you know, drinking issues, things like that. Um, and again, for me, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of guys who want to resolve ED problems.
1: Okay, so let's kind of pivot a little bit more toward ED, which is you know the broader, broader topic um, of this podcast and certainly what our listeners are primarily uh, interested in learning more about. So just to get started, I'm wondering, do, do you have a general um, approach or philosophy or a way that you conceptualize or think about psychogenic ED? No. <laughs> and I'm very deliberate in, in saying that
0: because <clears throat> what I find is, and this, this, this really uh, goes across all the different uh, issues that I work on with folks, is that I can see five different people who will have what appears on the surface to be the same problem. But the underlying structure to the problem, the how and why each person is doing it, can be completely different. So I might see one guy with an ED issue who, you know, it, it ties back to that uh, that baseball game. I might see another guy, and, you know, he never really admitted it to himself, but he's mad at his wife. He's really mad. Sometimes you see stuff like that. Another guy uh, might be, he's a type A driver and, you know, just needs to be the best at everything that he does and needs and has to and must. And that kind of attitude might work great in the boardroom, but in the bedroom can cause some problems. So there can be all kinds of different things going on uh, underneath the sort of presenting problem. So what I try to do is very deliberately not go in with a theory So I can just be wide open to whatever, whatever the client is showing up with and just kind of start to work with that from there and see where it goes.
1: And and with that though, there is an an overarching theory here that people are holding on to something in the subconscious that is triggering an anxiety process Mm -hmm. leading to lack of performance or a withholding.
0: Ah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Uh, And sometimes, you know, I could say in the subconscious, the unconscious, and sometimes it's kind of between the two where you've got certain beliefs or attitudes that a person has that are so ingrained that they don't even really realize they're thinking that way. Mm -hmm. And I think of it almost like sometimes um, if you've ever had the experience of um, during the summer. You walk into a store or your house or something, and you're looking around and thinking, "Oh, it's, it's kind of dark in here. What, what, what's going on?" You guys, "Oh, my sunglasses. And you remember to take them off?" Sometimes people have a way of looking at things and they're responding very much to that, that particular belief or that particular demand. And it's not unconscious, but it's not fully conscious either, and kind of helping them to see that and helping them to take off the glasses. Uh, I find can be really useful, but to your point, uh, yeah, I'd agree. You know, there's some kind of an emotional block there. Something is getting stirred up emotionally that's preventing them from performing physically. In that, as an overarching theory, I'd say, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I mean, something we talk about on this podcast all the time is that every uh, situation, every case, every person is unique. It's very difficult, you know, to bottle this all up at the same time. One of the <laughs> biggest concerns that I run into and you know the clinicians that I work with, work with run into is um people are skeptical and hesitant to get into an open-ended process without feeling like the therapist that they're working with has some sort of way or direction or approach, even if it's broad, even if it's not well, you know, this is what I do. I do step one, step two, step three, step four, and you're cured. We know it doesn't work like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, knowing that there's some kind of structure does bring, I think, a lot of people some relief to know that there's an approach, there's a thought process. I think what you presented makes, you know, a tremendous amount of sense. I'm sure our listeners are going to be comforted by that. Now, I work a little bit differently, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I when I approach men. And oftentimes I use more of a cognitive approach, um, toward a lot of these underlying thoughts from your perspective, how does your approach to hypnosis and more of a cognitive restructuring type of approach, how are they similar and how are they different?
0: Boy, it's, it's, it's a big question because it, it, again, I'm thinking of all the different clients where it could be both similar and or different. Uh, so for example. Okay, so let's go back to our, our client with the, uh, the baseball game. Sure. Okay, once, uh, once he's found that, that memory that's been being triggered uh, in the bedroom, usually there's a couple of very simple kind of questions that I can ask him and almost like little imagination exercises that I can uh, sort of guide him through that will allow that to clear so that it feels it feels better in its body. Uh, sometimes it is, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm absolutely not a licensed therapist or any, anything like that, but, you know, I've, I've read my Albert Ellis, I know my rational behavior, be rational motor behavior therapy, and sometimes that very kind of really putting the finger on the the the, the musts, the shoulds, the have tos, things like that even with some old, you know, old, ancient old memory can be really, really useful. Um, So the combination of, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: I think what what, what you're getting at is that, and I think this is true of a lot of, of, you know, therapies, whether it's mental health, hypnosis or whatnot, when you get to that memory processing through that often entails some form of, or elements of cognitive restructuring around how a person thinks about that memory, what they tell themselves about that memory. Um, it, it I wouldn't say it's an unavoidable, but I, I think it's part and parcel of a lot of the processing that people do. I'm sure some clients just identify the memory and do that on their own almost instantly when they see that the connection is being built. But many other people will need to process through that, utilizing some form of cognitive restructuring.
0: Yeah, and how how the perceptions are restructured can you know there's all kinds of different tools and some would probably be you know sort of more on the sort of traditional therapy and some uh, in the work that I do is way over on the other side where you can help a person to use their imagination and just ask some simple questions and from my standpoint. <clears throat> I'm I'm completely agnostic. You know, whatever works, as long as that person can then have the experience of that memory and feel okay.
1: The, the the body isn't reacting
0: to it anymore.
1: Okay, which makes you know a lot of sense to me. And I and and I think it's important the listeners understand that um, not all approaches are the same, but many of these approaches are not mutually exclusive. It's not as if one approach is, you know, fundamentally better, and the other approach is not going to be effective at all. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of different ways to get to the same points. Um, sometimes people need to go deep, sometimes people don't. That's been my experience. Totally I agreed. Think yep. Many people can benefit from going deep, but it really depends what, what what your goals are and what you're coming in for in that therapy process. Um, so yeah. I definitely want the listeners to see that there is a similarity. There's some definite definite overlap um, in the work that we do. And we're all kind of working in the same general direction.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And again, it goes back to that five different people could be doing the problem in five different ways. Mm-hmm. And for one person, you could go deep for 35 sessions uh, for hours and hours and hours that's not where the problem is. The problem is very much at that sort of surface conscious level with Mm -hmm. some of the ways they're thinking about things. And they just need some help in looking at things a little bit differently. So yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
1: And sometimes the problem is that their partner is, is actively being very critical and sometimes all that good work going deep is not nearly as effective. So it's a very complex process that unfolds for for many people in every situation that comes in is very different. Do you do you work with couples, Mark? I do. Cool.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't do that and yeah, I could imagine that being
1: hugely helpful sometimes. It 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 it's definitely a, um a helpful skill set to have when when treating this like again broadly because people people's relationships do make a big difference. We definitely talk about that um, on the podcast and the difference between a, a supportive partner and a, you know, unengaged partner or a partner who, again, I understand why this happens to people, but they just, they can't engage and they have a critical side to them. It's night and day. It really is night and day. And it just creates a whole nother layer, a whole whole nother dynamic to the work um, when a partner is, is involved or is, um, uh, contributing to some of the challenges now, kind of shifting gears. Uh, one one of the big questions that we get, both on the podcast, I see it in my practice, is about tangible skills. A lot of people want to know, okay, what do I do, doc? What do I do? How do I how do I do this in the moment? So, with hypnosis, you know the way the way uh, I'm understanding it from you, it's it's a deep process. It's a deep piece of work. If a man is experiencing acute Anxiety in a sexual situation. How does the hypnosis process help this man along to develop something tangible that he could do in the moment to help himself through an emerging anxiety?
0: Again, it depends on the person, that depends on the situation. Sometimes I would say nothing. You know, it's it's really about getting the underlying issues resolved with the assumption that when they're resolved. The, the performance will flow sort of normally and naturally um, for like a tool for someone to use. Again, it would, it would really depend on the person. Um, yeah. There's, there isn't any kind of sort of blanket suggestion I would have. I'm not, I'm never telling someone, I, I will say what I would not suggest even though I think for some people it could probably be useful, but it's just not a type of work that I ever do would be to, you know, do, do a self-hypnosis routine and have a mantra beforehand, you know, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, you know, that, that kind of thing. I think for some guys, it, it might be effective, but I, I don't do that type of work generally with folks. Usually I'm interested and I've got the sort of the long game
1: in mind, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, really important for, for our listeners to hear, because I know that, that that, that is something that comes up a lot is that totally, Again, I understand why why men are feeling a pressure to get these issues resolved as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And when we can facilitate that, we do. We're not holding anything. We don't want to delay the process. Um, at the same time, sometimes the work is just deeper. And, and the things that we do on the surface, they, they could be helpful, but, but in some of these deeper cases, they're really not. And it does take that, that deeper type of work, which unfolds over a little bit of a longer period of time. Um, to get things done well uh, you know i
0: sometimes for me i would say yes sometimes and sometimes I've seen guys by going very deep very quickly that they resolve, they resolve the problem very quickly so for in from what I've seen there's not necessarily a correlation between the depth and the time frame to solve the problem you know it's always great to see someone who can go very deep very quickly and just kind of solve it, it quickly
1: yeah so Brian, what, what do you do in a situation? If a, I'll throw a little, a little quick case out there. Tell me sure. how you work through this. Uh, yeah. A man comes in and he uh, reports, uh, he's medically cleared. That's one of our big things we emphasize here. He's been medically yep. cleared. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, no physiological, no, no identified physiological issues. And he says, well, I just, I struggle to get an erection on my own with a partner. Um, really don't seem to be able to get any of that. And I don't, I don't feel anxious at all. Like I'm not, I don't feel anything. Like I, I, I just, I don't know why it's not working. I don't feel anything in my body. I don't, you kind of go through those questions. What, what do you do at that stage? If this person is not identifying any particular angst or any particular worry, they just feel kind of neutral and it's just not working. Uh. And I'll emphasize: think, this is a this is a a non-standard presentation, but mm-hmm. it happens every so often in my office.
0: Yeah, uh, I think as soon as I heard that if he's on his own, he's not performing. Uh, I would probably say I wouldn't be the best guy for him to work with. Um, that's that's usually my sort of do i think i can one one of the because i don't i don't take anyone on who i don't think i can help mm-hmm. and i talk to people a lot on the phone before um i uh take them on as a client and if someone told me that they were just kind of meh even if they're on their own uh i would ask a lot of questions about that um because i don't know if i've ever worked with a guy who wasn't okay on his own. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would, and if I heard that, the first thing I would absolutely say would be, have you seen a doctor?
1: Correct. And 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 there are men that have been medically cleared. They do present like this. It is, again, it is, it is the exception, not the rule. Most commonly, I think what you're driving at is um, you're really focused on the performance anxiety, which is most noticeably identifiable in that discrepancy between... The ability to gain and maintain an erection when a man is on his own versus when he is with his partner, um, because that that usually is a clear indicator of performance anxiety. Uh, there are definitely a number of uh, presentations that are psychogenic um, that do fall into that not able to perform, or usually there still is a discrepancy. I will acknowledge that. Usually it's, I, I do somewhat okay on my own. I don't do really well with a partner or on occasion I can get an erection on my own and I can't really do this at all with a partner. Usually there's still a, some discrepancy. Um, but with all that, you know, certainly I've seen a number of men that present without that anxious bug and it's happening both in an in a individual and in a partnered setting. But all that being said, I'm hoping to modifying our example here a little bit just to kind of flesh this out a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Guy comes along and says, I feel excited. i do great on my own. It comes to my partner just doesn't work. And I'm not really worrying about that. They are supportive. I don't feel really anxious about it or whatnot, but it's something that I would like to resolve and they can't really identify anything somatically. Would that, Uh, would that be something that you would say, well, look, if you're not feeling anxious, you're not the kind of client that I could really be helpful toward, or is there something that hypnosis could be helpful for, especially if there's a potential that maybe this person's withholding and had to be anxious about it, but they might be withholding from a partner. There might be something going on at a deeper level.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think what I would do would probably be I would ask them to close their eyes and to take their attention inside. And just notice what's going on in their body. You know, they don't need to fix anything. They don't need to change anything. Just you know, very simply, just kind of notice. Just kind of hold their attention there. And then I would tell them that I was going to give them a sentence. And what I was going to ask them to do would be to repeat the sentence back and just notice how their body responds as they say it. Mm -hmm. And the sentence I would give them would probably be something like, I give myself permission to have sex with my partner. And just notice the body response. And if the body response was completely flat, I'd probably ask them if it felt true, I'd, you know, might give them some other sentences, things like that. But if, if it was an unconscious thing, there was something cooking there at a deeper level, when they, uh, repeated the sentence back, most likely the body's going to react. There's going to be a little bit of something there that says no. Okay. And that's I really be yeah. kind of the, the entry, the entryway to the conversation.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I like that on so many levels, and I also kind of takes me back to that question I asked before about there is a conceptualization that you have absolutely because when you get that off kilter presentation, you still have a thought of how to go about doing this, which is if there is something subconscious here or at a deeper level, I'm going to ask some of these questions and see mm-hmm. what might be going on down there. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, it really kind of does does you know you know pull things together, and I do think that there's something powerful about you know, having that, like, yep, there's a way to think about this, there's an approach, um, and that certainly is is coming through. But I like to throw out those unconventional situations. I recognize that the vast majority, and I think probably, you know, high 90, 90 percentile, probably 99% of men that present have some identifiable anxiety um, going on that, that seems to be very much involved uh, in that psychogenic ED. Uh, but it does happen every so often, uh, that somebody presents without that. And it, it is a, a bit of a, a curveball for us therapists. And, and,
0: it, and it can be both. Like I've seen clients where you, you work through the big anxiety thing in their, you know, their, their stomach that had been, you know, just completely seized up is fine but there's still a little something there. It's almost like you need to sort of go, okay, at a more subtle level and you'll find some old belief or some random thought or something that's not that big a deal, but it's just enough to still throw them off a little bit. So it's good to have sort of different kind of tools to to help with the different levels of it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So one of the questions that I'm, I'm sure you're going to give me the same answer that I would give you uh is how long does treatment take and it's going to be very much dependent on sure <laughs> on each client but these are these are some of the most common questions that that I get as a therapist I'm sure you get when when a potential client wants to know about your services so how do you answer that question
0: uh i'm very frank and say that i don't know uh my goal is always to help a client solve the problem as quickly as possible and usually that's quite quickly but on the other end of the spectrum, it can take a real sense of persistence sometimes to, to see it all the way through. Mm-hmm.
1: So without committing you to a specific number, just to give our listeners like a range, because therapists oftentimes don't know, and, and the mind is so complex. It's very difficult for any of us to give like a, oh yeah, I do this in you know five sessions and you're done. At the same time, when you talk about like a quick turnaround, what would be a quick turnaround in a hypnosis process to address psychogenic ED? Well, I'll say a
0: couple things. The first is, Mark, I'm not going to answer your question.
1: <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you why.
0: Uh, what I find is <clears throat> that whenever I, because I used, it, because uh, I have people ask me this on the phone all the time. And I used to answer the question. I used to say, oh, yeah, stuff like this usually takes about X number of sessions. Uh And what I used to find was people who I had the sense probably could have solved the problem much more quickly just happened to take about X number of sessions, which wasn't as troubling as on the other side of it, where I'd see people who were doing fine. They were doing great work for themselves and they hit X number of sessions. And all of a sudden, there was this whole second layer of, Am I taking too long? Is this going to work? All this stuff that we had to kind of deal with and
1: work through
0: um, because I made the mistake of setting the expectation.
1: It's a so really, yeah, it's really important. It's a really important point to be making, which is that you don't want to, you don't want to accidentally or unintentionally trigger a secondary anxiety, which is we're, we're, we're in sensitive territory here. And if, if, You answer that question to say, oh, take four sessions or, you know, guys who are really good take eight sessions or whatnot, and someone's making really good progress, and then they hit that number, and Mm -hmm. then they start to wonder, oh, wait a minute, am I not really good? Is there something else going on with me? You almost create a secondary anxiety by accident Mm -hmm. or unintentionally, which really slows the process. So, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you not even putting out that number. Because I do you know, want to try to ensure best outcomes you know, for, I, I can, for clients.
0: And if you want, I can give you a second part to the answer as well. Please. The way I sort of structure things in terms of fees is very different from a more traditional therapist in that what I do is I just charge a flat fee for a successful outcome. So it's one price to solve a problem, regardless of the number of sessions it takes. So I can say, okay, it's going to take as long as it takes, and people are generally okay with that. And I also have a policy where if the work goes out as far as 10 sessions, that's a check-in point. If after 10 sessions a client is still still working, we check in. And if the client feels like they're making good progress, we keep right going until the problem's solved. If someone's done that much work and they don't feel like they've made any progress, then I guarantee the work by refunding half the fee. So, when clients ask me about time, time frames, they know that we're talking 10 would be you know, a good chunk of work. It's not like 50 or 100 or something mm-hmm. like that, that we're sort of doing the check in for the evaluation. Okay, great. So, so like, I, I don't know if that's helpful or not. No,
1: it's helpful. It's helpful it's, to it's, know It's, broad it's important number. when
0: I'm talking with people. Yes. because they can see it's not the oh you know though we don't know how long this is going to take you know
1: right four four years later of weekly therapy and right <sighs> yeah. And, yeah and I definitely understand how you know people are not uh interested in signing up for that um so I can appreciate again some time frame but I also definitely get that like there may be outcomes that you have seen that are quicker than that time frame without putting a specific number on it yeah. now to kind of wrap up here. I'm wondering, are there any risks to hypnosis? Do people have any adverse effects at times? Does it sometimes get too deep and open up too much, trigger too much trauma? Is that Has that been an issue that you've run into?
0: Really, really rarely. Um, I've had a couple of people over the years who... We started to, you know, do some work and some old memories and some other stuff came up between sessions. um, That, boy, I would have to go back. I'd probably have to go back about 15 years to think of someone who, you know, it was important for them to come in and sort of do a session sooner than the one we had scheduled because they had some some things coming up. So very rarely, and yes, I have seen that happen a couple times.
1: Okay, but it's rare.
0: Extremely rare.
1: Yeah. Okay. And then lastly, how often does somebody come back? For let's say we call it, I want I don't want to use the word relapse because it's not fair. Um, but how often is it that a guy is successfully resolved especially around ED mm-hmm. and then a half a year later or a year later comes back and says, "Hey Brian, I don't know what happened, but this got like re-triggered somehow, and now I'm having similar problems.
0: Yeah, um, the vast majority of the time, uh, after the initial round of sessions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the 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 problem is solved and it, it stays solved. But yeah, it can happen sometimes. Um, just recently, I had a client who worked with I think about three years ago, and Solved. He did great. You know, uh, children uh, came into the picture not very long afterwards, like all good. And, and again, it's so interesting the way the mind works. He was uh, involved in an athletic competition, and something happened, and it just kind of triggered this little thing in his mind again. And he started to do the problem again. And fortunately, um, He gave me a call right away, and uh, we did two more sessions. Uh, There was a couple other little things that he he needed some help with, and since then, he's been great.
1: In other words, you're saying that that something that had been processed through, life can cause that to get reactivated. I had a a
0: client, uh, a nail-biting client who I worked with 12 years ago, come in again recently fine for 12 years. And he just started to a little bit. So he gave me a call right away. It was maybe a 20 minute session. It was really easy. He had just gone into a little, a little bit of a different situation that he hadn't been in before. There was some stuff that got triggered that we hadn't even known was there. Um, Very quick, very easy. But um, yeah, I wish I could tell you, no, you know, hypnotherapy solves everything always forever. And usually I think it, it works really well, but yeah, just, just as as you ask, uh, that can happen sometimes.
1: Yeah. And, and, and just to reemphasize your point, the mind is really complex. It's really complex. I don't believe that there is any approach to doing this work, which is set it and forget it. Once we've solved it, once we've gotten to a better place, this will never resurface. It just doesn't work like that. It doesn't, you know, our memories don't clear, like... You know, you clear a virus out of a computer. It doesn't work like that. It's a memory. It's there. It has the potential to be reactivated. And even if you're in a better place with it, something like, well, another athletic competition could just start to give it a little bit more fuel based on an experience. And it's very hard to fully eliminate and keep these things totally at bay for everybody in perpetuity. That's part of the complexity of the work that I see. Um, Because again, I think I see a similar type of thing. Most people are good once they've resolved the problem. Mm-hmm. And there are people that do have to come back in for a maintenance session every so often because something changed in their circumstances or something came up or a life event that you know caused a setback or caused a resurgence of symptoms. And more often than not, it doesn't require a full opening of the process, especially if they call quick enough. And they don't Mm -hmm. let it. They don't let it uh, fester for too long. Um, So I definitely uh, can appreciate um, the complexity that you see, um, because I think I see something very similar in the people that I work with as well. Um, Any final thoughts that you would have for our listeners uh, as we wrap up this this uh, recording?
0: Just uh, if they're if they're already listening to your podcast, uh, I'm sure they understand this anyway. But this stuff is solvable. You know, it can guys can get go to some really dark kind of hopeless places thinking there's nothing I can do. The rest of my life is going to be, you know, terrible and awful. I'll never get this solved. And now the stuff is really solvable. And, you know, is, is it necessarily the first person they work with or the second, you know, ideally yes. Um, but you know, I've worked with a whole lot of guys with this issue and, uh, almost all of them have done just beautiful work for themselves and got it solved. So I hope if, if nothing else guys can, you know, take it from someone who's seen a whole lot of guys with this problem um, that it's, it's solvable. There's, there's hope.
1: I couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. So uh, Brian, I really appreciate you coming on, educating me about, you know, your approach to hypnosis. I know that there's lots of approaches out there, but this has been very informative to me. It also helps to kind of sharpen the way I think about Um, psychogenic ED, the work that I do, um, always learning from other people, their approaches as well. So this has been very informative for me. I'm sure our listeners are going to benefit from all of this. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, My pleasure. Thanks, Mark.
0: Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.